everyone, this is Radio Trivia Podcast Edition, episode 124. And with us for this uh, month, I, I guess it's sort of a monthly podcast, uh, we have our old friend Greg Leahy. Hello there. Uh, it's very... a little earlier in the year than usual, yes? Well, it is and it isn't. You see, it's earlier than last year, but the whole idea I started putting together a list of games I thought we might, you know, I was kind of compiling games that I'd played recently and stuff like that might be good for a radio trivia appearance. And I thought, well, you know, in the, the typical thing of the annual appearance was to do it at Easter when the RFN gang were at PAX East and I didn't have to edit for a week, so I was free to do a radio trivia. So I thought maybe we'd return to that tradition uh, this year but unfortunately then there was the whole thing with the fact there won't be any NWR panels at PAX East yeah. this year, connectivity included as well it's very sad uh, yeah. so rather than kind of holding off for another month I thought well, you know I've got this kind of ready to go uh, may as well uh, you know, go ahead and strike while the iron's hot, although it's, it's still been eight months since the last episode which I, I was surprised it was actually that long when I looked at us, time's flying we haven't had that many episodes. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's that. It was, the, it was the telethon as well, which is is an ep- is like a special episode where you can forget that sometimes. Greg does most of the work when he comes on, so I'm very happy when Greg <laughs> comes on because he, he comes with a, with a full set of uh, games and songs selected. and It, it, it really does uh, make things real easy for me, <laughs> up front at least, because uh, usually, I don't know if people realize this, but it usually takes me maybe four or five hours before I record uh, just to prep all the games and make sure I like the song selections and everything. So, it, um, it, you know, it, it, even though we don't have four people on, like uh, Connectivity or Radio Free Nintendo, it's a lot of work that goes into this. And I oh, the, people... yeah, but the post work as well, I've yeah. always I've always been impressed with, but uh, I'm sure I'll make you suffer on that end, I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just that's a known, that's a given, uh, that yep. uh, there's work yep. in, uh, after the fact. I got a, I think it was a response in the forums, uh, I don't know if it was on the last episode or maybe the episode before, but uh, I don't talk about the format of this show enough, I probably should, uh, just as a reminder, uh, we have five games, three songs per game, and the goal really is to try to figure out what game we've selected. Um, it, one person in the forums posted saying, I don't get the bonus question. So uh, for, for those who don't understand why we have a bonus question, maybe there's no good reason. It's, it's kind of tradition. <laughs> Inertia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the original thinking was that um, in this format, uh, it served as uh, a hint if you hadn't figured out the game. And if you had, it gives you something else to chew on. Uh, you know, maybe you know the game, but maybe you, you don't remember the answer to the question. Um, so that, that was the original intent. Um, when yeah, and I, it's when it works well, it's a lot of fun. I don't know whether some of these that I've, I've got some bonus slash in question for my game. Some of them probably go a bit too obscure to really give people a hint. I'm sorry, but you know, I, I do try. I try and fulfil both objectives. Yeah, so that's that's our justification. But really, it's just tradition. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah. We've had uh, questions associated with. Uh, Radio Trivia since very early in the uh, Radio Trivia Live uh, format long, long time ago. That's maybe not a good reason to, to carry that forward if it doesn't work, but, uh, you know, I think it works okay. <laughs> if I get a bunch of people telling me it's real stupid, maybe I'll, I'll <laughs> forego the effort. But I, I, I enjoy the bonus questions, uh, even if you forget to answer them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the main thing. <laughs> Got to be disciplined about it. If you're going to do it, do it right. Yeah. 
So <laughs> regarding the format for uh, this particular podcast, at Greg's request, we are deviating from our rule on um, only games released in North America, which we have done in the past on occasion. Yeah, just like to be up front, it's a li- another element of game within a game in terms of, you know, one of the five will be an input game, but you don't know which one, so maybe that could be a little bit of a clue even in some case. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, and to further clarify, it's actually a game that was only released in Japan, correct? Yeah, in this case it is. We did a parody us once, which was released in Europe, weirdly, uh, but not America, uh, when we sort of bent the rules on a previous occasion. But yes, Japan only this time. All right, so there's your uh, extra hint. We won't tell you which one, though. Well, with that and with Greg keeping me disciplined for this episode, let's venture forth for the first song of the first game.
Oh, there you go. Now, I've, the last time I was on in particular, but I think a few other times, I've tended to sort of favour maybe a, a sort of lighter atmospheric kind of song to ease you into the proceedings. Not so this time. I wanted organ solo to get us going. Now, see, there's your gentle song, uh, if, if you missed that the first time. Uh, I've fulfilled it. This, but I also have a very what I consider to be, for people who've played this game might already know what it is, very gentle bonus slash hint question as well. So uh, the question is, what are the three different types of stages in this game?
I keep waiting for my favorite part of that song, and it's just not going to come, is it? <laughs> you, you, you chose the version that doesn't have the part of the song I like the most. Yeah, well, so let's uh, dispense with uh, the, the, uh, the, the formalities here. This game is Theater Rhythm Final Fantasy for the 3DS. Um, and it is one of those sorts of games you can almost do, you know, like what you did with um, the Brawl Birthday Bash <laughs> all those years ago, you know, like just do a whole episode with songs from that one game and identify yeah. which sort of sub-game it's from. Because, of course, it is you know, the, the Final Fantasy uh, rhythm game that compiles music from all the, the mainline games, the numbered games, from 1 to 13. Uh, and, yeah, so... The answer to the hint question, uh, which was the three different stages, is field music, battle music, and event music. And so what I wanted to do with the three songs is reflect that with having one of each. And so, yeah, the Defiers of Fate from Final Fantasy XIII, which was the final track you heard there, uh, yeah, is it that theme you know is is must be strongly featured throughout final fantasy 13 because uh, i think it's kind of um you know appears in a lot of different places but in fact also i chose it because it's uh, that theme is used on like the menu screens of uh, theater rhythm so even if you've never touched final fantasy 13 it really should be kind of wired into your brain if you've played theater rhythm Mm -hmm. Uh, so i kind of felt like that would be the final giveaway for anybody that was almost there uh, but not quite yeah yeah well uh, i only played this game at e3 i remember playing three or four of the i think they had the full game there i don't think it was just a demo I, i seem to recall this game coming out right around E3 and they just had the full game on display basically on the, on the show floor and uh, although I'm a fan of Final Fantasy music I'm, I haven't played that many Final Fantasy so, so a lot of the songs in this uh, soundtrack they don't have I guess pretty special meaning to me um, and the, the gameplay didn't really grab me I played it you know I played two or three different tracks or whatever they call it with a combination of you know uh, uh, levels stages whatever and uh, I don't know it just didn't grab me maybe maybe it's just me I'm not a big music game fan but um, I don't know I, it just uh, I appreciate what I was doing but the, to be honest the, the art style of the characters kind of scare me uh, I, I, that yeah may, it's that kind may... of a weird weird <laughs> art style I think it's somebody that had done something like for Square Enix on a Kingdom Hearts like thing or so you know like is this they've used this style before they're almost like look like little dolls just yeah. made up differently to reflect each character I can't say that was something I particularly uh, liked about it a lot like, but, but I mean it's neither here nor there really for me but um, I mean I'm in a similar position as you in terms of I've not played very many Final Fantasies I've only really played uh, four and six for any length of time um, but the, the, undoubtedly one of my favourite things about those experiences was the soundtrack sure. and so this kind of appealed to me as a way of kind of you know consuming the Final Fantasy soundtracks that I hadn't played and in all likelihood will never play you know there, there's yeah. so many and I've never had a particularly voracious appetite for RPGs, uh, but you know, in a, in in a sort of accessible format, uh, as I do like rhythm games. And uh, I mean, as a rhythm game, sort of you know, down to its sort of core, I would say it's it's solid. You know, not uh, especially sort of inspired or brilliant, but uh, you know, good enough. Um, you know, can't hold the handle to Donkey Konga, man. No, Donkey Konga's. <laughs> King of Kings. <laughs> king, well, that was Jungle Bee, wasn't it? When he was the King uh, of Kings. Yeah, yeah it was. Sorry, guys. 
<laughs> still use the bongos, never still forget. Still use the bongos. But yeah, I mean, uh, compared to stuff with something like uh, Elite Beat Agents or Wendan, which of course, you know, uh, use of the previous episode, which I enjoyed a lot. That was shockingly nostalgic for me, actually, when you use that. It's like, I felt like I went back to 2007, or whatever it was when it came out. Like, it's just because I pounded that game into the ground for a oh, period yeah. of a couple of months, and so those songs were just whizzing around in my head over and over again. And then I never really went back to it after that, so it's very particular to that place in time. But I imagine some people might feel that way about, you know, if they had played a lot of Final Fantasies over the years, you know, this would kind of do that as well, you know, that kind of nostalgia trip. And it did end up coinciding with the 25th anniversary of the series when it came out a bit fortuitously because apparently they had considered making this game way back, like, in the earlier days of the DS. But just, I guess, maybe some limitations with the format or whatever it was, it just didn't line up properly. Until yeah, I'd, I'd have to think that the uh, compression they'd have to do for the a DS game would hinder the experience yeah because i mean these songs are precisely as they were on their original formats you know they're they're, they're not like there are i think some new versions or at least different versions as i kind of hinted at talking about uh, the final fantasy 13 theme in the menus and things like it's a really not there's a really nice piano version of something to protect i think it's called a battle theme it's it, it, like completely slowed down and done with a piano and really soft instrumentation like that's great outside of it but mostly it's just you know the songs as they were all the way back to 8-bit going up to you know Final Fantasy 13 so you get to go on this really interesting kind of journey of the evolution of the music uh, which I, I really do enjoy just how you know, and even just like beyond the generational leaps like the difference between Final Fantasy 8 and Final Fantasy 9 which you know they came out fairly close together in terms of uh, you know the, the calendar, but uh, they sound very different. And you, yeah, even yeah. if you even if you knew nothing about the games, uh, you could kind of guess that Final Fantasy IX was trying to channel more the spirit of the old Final Fantasies. You know the pre seven, you know the old the classic Final Fantasies. Uh, even then, so that's what's kind of cool for me. Is it's just this little like flyover of the series that you know I have interest in and I love the music a lot, but uh, you. You know, realistically, I'm never going to be able to devote the time to get sort of intimately familiar with all the, all the games. And on a practical note, this gives us an excuse to see, play some of the songs from those games that didn't uh, come out on Nintendo platforms. Exactly, so. and I, I couldn't re- I couldn't resist. It's like we can we can actually get some of these. And that is you know, partially why. If you're wondering why I haven't chose something from Final Fantasy VI, or which I mean, it has an incredible soundtrack. Uh, some of the stuff like the. Uh, the battle with Kefka, the dancing mad song, is inc- like this prog rock apocalyptic masterpiece. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, so it's certainly not. I appreciate all the stuff, but I chose this period. Like, so the, just to sort of be thorough, I suppose. Uh, the first song was "Fight with Seymour" from Final Fantasy X, and the second song was "Over the Hill" from Final Fantasy IX. So they were all like, you know, the sort of post Nintendo platform era because I just thought it's a great way to kind of cheat and get them on. <laughs> um, but also, I mean, even that spans three different platforms. 
you know uh, generations yeah. right there you know ps1 2 and 3 so it, but it, it's kind of interesting evolution that happened and also that was a kind of period of time where the the way the songs are being written was changing because i think final fantasy 10 was the first of the series that uematsu and uh, nabua uematsu had, did not write all of the music himself he kind of brought on some collaborators to help because i guess the soundtracks were probably just getting bigger and bigger and bigger you know it's it pretty unwieldy but then by the time you get to final fantasy 13 you know umats had left square and uh, he was a freelancer he still does work for them but the, i don't think he contributed to the 13 soundtrack at all actually mm-hmm. so it's a big change from having the same man you know that you know, there's a lot of things about final fantasy that change from installment to installment but umats was very much the you know the constant all the way up to 10 yeah can I say I actually like the Final Fantasy XIII soundtrack it maybe doesn't have enough variety it does kind of use some of the same themes too much but uh, I actually really like the songs from Final Fantasy XIII and I what I've heard of it it's very good actually I mean like I said I mean the thing is what you hear of it is like a tiny smidgen of, of what the game would be presumably yeah, but you, you do hear the same songs for long periods of time in that game. <laughs> uh, that, that is the criticism, uh, but um, but what's there is good. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that's part of going for an even more cinematic kind of feel, you know, as, as they've have gone along. Uh, I guess uh, you, you kind of hammer the same motifs again and again, you know, that maybe that's yeah. a kind of part and parcel of all that. But yeah, I mean, uh, what interesting though I wanted to bring up is what the developer of this game is is a, a developer that seemingly just like specialises in nostalgia products. Um, Indie Zero. Because um, they made Game Center CX, the two games, you know, in Japan, and that which the first one was localized as Retro Game Challenge, the other one was not, and then there's the third one coming out, which has nothing to do with Indie Zero, that apparently isn't that great, and then also they made NES Remix, and 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 the second one that's uh, going to yeah. be coming pretty soon. So that is uh, that, that's seemingly their niche, even though a rhythm game quite different from you know like what they were doing i mean game set cx and nes remix i could kind of see the overlap there but yeah, apparently if you need somebody to kind of uh, bring out the old memories that's who you go to in d0 <laughs> <laughs> very good then <laughs> well i'm all in favor of that all right we should probably move on to the next uh, game here yeah, very well
I really can't make my mind up whether that song is sort of tense or chilled out. It's it's a little bit of both. I think the title of that song would tell you what they were going for. I know, but still, I question it. I, I'm not taking it on face value. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I think that song was particularly apt to lead in uh, to the bonus slash hint question I've prepared for this game. So, two of this game's four composers had previously worked together on which famous RPG soundtrack?
I like how we have two games that sound like RPGs but aren't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was a common thread uh, between the two. And there's more common threads uh, as I'll go on as I discuss this game. So first of all, let us uh, state what it is. This is Front Mission Gun Hazard for the Super Famicom. So this is our import game. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, this is a spin-off to the Front Mission series, of, uh, which is a strategy RPG series. Um, I think taking quite a heavy sort of inspiration from Fire Emblem. Um, initially, uh, but um, the, the, the interesting part about it is that the first Front Mission game for the Super Nintendo came out in about 95, and then you have this spin-off in 96. You know, so it really just months apart, they already had a spin-off going for this like brand new strategy RPG series coming out of Square at the time, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but to, to address the, the bonus question, so two of this game's four composers previously worked together which famous RPG soundtrack it is Chrono Trigger because uh, the two I'm referring to are Nobu uh, Uematsu again and then uh, Yasunori Mitsuda uh, who mostly composed the Chrono Trigger soundtrack before he became so ill with ulcers from the stress of it that uh, you really it, shouldn't laugh. <laughs> no, it's really bad. But I think it was his. I think that Chrono Trigger, believe it or not, was uh, Mitsuda's first soundtrack. Ever. Yeah, it was just like I had always bent up energy for it, and he, he just sort of like this is my opportunity. <laughs> he ran with it, you know, really hard, and uh, and it's like I think this would have been Front Mission Gun Hazard would have been his second, you know, and um, it has to have been uh, pretty the... much given again the close proximity uh, between the games. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in fact, like I said, there's four composers on this, and the other two were sort of young composers at Square at the time. Uh, Masashi Hamuzu and Junya Nakano and they actually both went on to work on the Final Fantasy X soundtrack when Uematsu kind of stepped back so um, there's a lot of, of RPG lineage going on with the soundtrack here and yet it isn't an RPG at all it's, it's quite strange uh, but um, I'm trying to describe what this is like cause, I mean, this only came out in Japan but it what would you like? It almost reminded me of Drill Dozer in a weird way, but that's the that's game that it's better. most like. The game that's directly comparable to is Cybernator, because uh, there's a common lineage with the or, or Assault Suits Vulcan, as it's known in Japan, uh, because there's a common lineage with the developer there. So um, the sort of mastermind of the the whole Front Mission series was employed at the company that made Cybernator, Messiah, that also made. Um, Chowaniki, <laughs> believe it or not, the first Chowaniki game. <laughs> All comes about to Chowaniki in the end. But um, so he you know, left, started his own company, and then kind of got Front Mission going as a series being published by Square. But I guess that's why this spin off happened so fast is because you know that this was a game that his guys already knew how to make mm -hmm. um you know the, this sort of side scrolling where you're in you're, you're the playable character is actually sort of a giant mech even though you know it's only as big as your, your typical sort of playable character was in this sort of game at the time but it did would affect like you know how the, the character moved and all that kind of stuff so yeah i mean that that's kind of explains why it came so soon after the uh, the main sort of strand of the series and you know the, uh, it's interesting that they got this sort of really impressive roster of uh, composers to work on it uh, you know given that the series was so young and that this was a spin-off of a young series uh, but uh, I think what they produced is really really good and in fact they, I've not actually played this game 
at all. I can only say that it's, it's just a game that I've very I've come very close to buying on the Japan Virtual Console because it is available through that. Um, just simply because of the music. I mean, I've played Cybernator, um, the Japanese version, and I like it a, a fair bit. But I can't say as the you know it left me hungering for more. And the general consensus is that uh, Front Mission Gun Hazard isn't particularly better as a, as a similar sort of game. Mm. I mean, it's a bit different in certain areas. It's got um, a bit more sort of customization RPG-type elements to it, which you might expect, given that it's it's tying into a strategy RPG. But in general, um, you know, whereas Cybernators generally was regarded well at the time, this actually did split opinion. I think, memorably, it got a very bad review from the magazine over here in Britain that covered, you know, was very proactive about covering the import stuff at the time. Um, you know, so definitely that always stuck with me that, you know, that, that they didn't rate it. But then there are people that do like it, so I've, I've toyed with getting it just to kind of put this great soundtrack in context but never have pulled the trigger. There are several, um, I don't know if they're later Super Famicom games, but there, there's several Super Famicom games that Square published that uh, never made it out of Japan and I, and I just sort of grouped them all together because they all had really good soundtracks, things like Treasure Hunter G, uh, I think there was Saga. Bahamut Lagoon. Or that. Okay, I don't know how to say that, but I think that was another one that was later that did. Yeah, I mean, it's true because they were, you know, this is 1996. This is the year the N64 comes out. The PlayStation's already been out for a couple of years, you know. So, yeah. I mean, this was really late. And I guess at that stage, maybe they just didn't feel like, you know, there was enough of a market you know, based on maybe how stuff like the FF six last three had performed or whatever you know like if it was going to be so many percentage points poorer than that in the states it just wasn't worth you know, putting the yeah. effort into local by the time you would localize it it's going to be 1997 and then it's going to be even more passe you know mm-hmm. so I, I i can understand how that happened but yeah i mean there, there's a lot of really good soundtracks that didn't get heard and this one is vast i mean for a game of this type it's not an rpg you know it's not some 40 hour epic game and yet the other soundtrack releases this huge two disc thing you know hours of music <laughs> yeah. uh, with from these four composers it's, really, it's kind of I don't know whether it's you know sort of quaint almost the idea that you know, this sort of fairly unproven series just got given this really royal treatment to give it this great soundtrack and it's it does it's quite yeah, it's got a general kind of feel to it but as you might expect with four composers it's got quite a bit of variety but there's some of that driving kind of industrial militaristic kind of stuff that you might expect about a series that's set in a kind of not too distant future where everyone's at war enjoying robots uh, but but I've then heard you that story before <laughs> yeah although i mean my understanding is that front mission you know it, relatively speaking is, is the story's quite strong and it was all planned out very carefully and all that so it's a series i've considered getting into especially since i've got more into fire emblem over the past couple of years um, but uh, i i never have but yeah i mean you do get those rpg type songs as well like the middle one um, which are really beautiful. It could have been plucked out of you know, any of Square Super Nintendo RPGs and kind of fit yeah. in. You know, it's it's really a shame Square hasn't mined some of these things. Where it seems like they could do a you know an update or re-release or, or something uh, and, and localize it you know internationally. 
Well, in this case, there is actually a fan translation. You know, the, the people did go to the effort and there's a patch and all that. So there's always that question of like, oh, could they just, you know, appropriate the fan translation and do something? But uh, that's uh, not something that happens very often. Uh, and uh, this is relatively obscure. There's probably things that would be in front of the queue for it. But uh, that's another thing that does kind of put me off just playing it on the virtual console. So I think even though you know, it is an RPG it, it, the story's fairly important to it and it would just be you yeah. know kind of flying over my even if I could bumble my way through the menus it'd still be an issue yeah, I envisioned being similar experience to playing Sin and Punishment to the import version which I, <laughs> even though uh, it came out in the States I wound up buying the import one because at that time I didn't know it was going to come out yeah, uh, sure. in the States and um Unlike the original, it's the the sequel was in Japanese entirely. So that's right. Yeah, it's, it's always strange that the first one had English voices for something as sort of yeah. uh, anime tastic as it is. It's, it's pretty odd. Okay, well, we should move to the third song, which or third game, I should say, that is a listener request. This one was requested by Shiny Ray. I get to play along now as well. You get to play along for this one selection. fairly confident I've not played this game so I'm currently scrambling together sort of out of the air potential series that it could come from <laughs> <laughs> very good
he mention the acid trip portion of this uh, podcast? <laughs> that wasn't the second song, it was just the acid trip portion. <laughs> I have never needed the hint question more. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, um, well, there's not much of a hint. <laughs> well, maybe. I'll what take what distinguishes, I can get. Yeah, What distinguishes the Walmart exclusive special edition of this game from its standard release? I'm guessing this is not Chibi Robo. Also, that gate, that the end of that question actually it, it shows it's not Chibi Robo because he only <laughs> came out in Walmart. <laughs> okay, third song, Ahoy. Put me out of my misery. I've got nothing. Uh, <laughs> this is 1080 Avalanche for the GameCube. Really? Good lord. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it, well, it's, I've never played either of the 1080 games, uh, so I oh, guess really? even, I, I, I wouldn't uh, even... I don't know whether there's any resemblance to the uh, soundtrack. Although, on reflection, maybe I can hear a little bit of Blue Storm, like some similarities with the Wave Race Blue Storm, which was, you know, kind uh-huh, of the, the sister game uh, yeah. on that. So that if I'd really thought about it, maybe I could have got there, but uh, probably not for at least another five years. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, th- this game was originally had a subtitle of White Storm. Yeah, and it was very explicitly kind of. I mean, because I mean, it was it was it, it was the case, wasn't it? That I mean, Wave Race '64 was internally developed, and then what was 1080? I think what also was. Um, and T- then, 1080 was a weird beast. I think it was. Uh, this might have been one of those games that was like 80 percent. Like Giles Goddard or something. Um, right. But uh, yeah, it, it, this was when with NST, right? So they kind of yes. took over both Wave Race and 1080 for the GameCube generation, the, the new fancy versions. Right. Um, and uh, certainly in terms of presentation, they're very, you know, um, similar in terms of, you know, being hip and with it or whatever. I don't know <laughs> what they were, they were going for. <laughs> I, I am not whatever they were going for. Uh, <laughs> But uh, 1080, I own the N64 game. Uh, I think we, I rented it, enjoyed it, and bought the 
game for N64. Uh, one of the few games I rented, actually, before I bought. And uh, after I beat it, I just didn't want to touch it. Um, there was, wasn't anything there for me. I, there, it has a trick system, and, and there's time trials and stuff, but it, it's... I guess there just wasn't that much meat on the bones there, even though it was a very good game. Yeah, it's it's always been... At the time, you know, the N64 era, uh, I had Wave Race. Of course, mm-hmm. Wave Race was significantly earlier at a time when there were very few games coming out. You know, I mean, right. I think... Uh, I mean, I think that from sort of the summer of '96 when I got my N64 to the end of that year, I had three games. Two of them were Mario and Pilot Wings that were launched. The third was Wave Race. You know? so yeah, that's got a. But uh, 1080 intrigued me because I like Wave Race. But the problem was, you know, importing N64 games was so expensive. It just kind of felt like a bit too of a lu- too much of a luxury, you know, because it's like, well, how long, you know, are you going to play it for? There were some more. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were other games at that point, and I had Wave Race, so it was kind of like, you know, maybe it's, it, obviously it's different. Don't get me wrong, but maybe a bit duplicative. So I never got into it there, and so even though it was a lot easier to get stuff at reasonable prices when you come around to the GameCube. Era. Um, I mean, certainly, I ended up getting Wave Race Blue Storm for a pittance years later. Um, but uh, yeah, because uh, I 1080 never really, you know, I never got to sort of experience it. It's never sort of grabbed me to go, but not even on virtual console. Um, yeah. Well, it, I think that if I were going to uh, walk into a, uh, my first 1080 game, I I would try to hunt down this game instead because I have to think it's more polished. There's probably a little bit more depth to it. Um, more variety. Certainly, the graphics will be better since it's a newer system. I played this at the Cube Clubs. If, if you remember oh, what those I, are, I do. I do I, well, I, obviously, I never experienced one, but I certainly remember the coverage. Yeah. So I, mean, I played it. It just seemed very similar to, um, you know, the uh, N64 game. I think there were some new, you know, additions regarding how you stay balanced and stuff. But um, overall, I mean, it, it's primarily a racing game i mean the uh, ssx kind of does a lot of tricks and there's a lot of focus on tricks and stuff like that uh, 1080 is more of a racing game so you, you, the goal is really more of getting down the to the bottom uh using you know the quickest path possible a little more grand prix like in that way which, which is why i thought maybe you'd play this game yeah no like it's, it was kind of in my wheelhouse but it was just there was a lot of games on the n64 that were like that, that was kind of, and, and the Super Famicom were pretty much the whole time I was importing, really. It's kind of like, you know, I would like that. It's like I had the original DKC, but neither of the sequels. Mm-hmm. Even though I pretty, you know, everybody thought DKC 2 was better, pretty much. But yep. it was it was, it was was a luxury, you know, because these things were costing, you know, 60 to 80 pounds back in 90s yeah. money. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a lot to dip back into the well. Uh, but the, that's the way I looked at it, was another racing game, just a, a bit of a different theme. Uh, but uh, I am intrigued to know why this had a Walmart exclusive edition and what was special about it. I so, so apparently there was a Walmart release that uh, had a bonus disc. And uh, the bonus disc was a mini DVD with extreme snowboarding footage spliced in with gameplay footage. 
Yeah, the soundtrack from the a, a very practical bonus, uh, mind you. It, I, it, I really it, do it, hope that footage was every bit as grainy as the F Zero GX story <laughs> missions. It's like looking on that on a you know a new telly, you know HD telly as it was yeah. when I played those for the the retroactive we did at the start of the year. It was pretty. It's like oh wow, like they really look this bad. So yeah, like, that, that well, should be pretty fun. The, the, the craziest thing about this is that although the form factor was mini DVD uh, size. So it looked like a GameCube disc. It did not play on the GameCube. It was a DVD. <laughs> it was a DVD disc. So oh, I'm wow. sure everyone thought, "Oh, this is like a video disc for my GameCube." Because yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> what the hell, Nintendo? <laughs> I, I had not heard about that. If I, well, maybe I did, and I just totally forgot in the intervening ten years or whatever. What? Well, probably more than ten years. I, I, I can just see like the the ideas. Like, oh, we'll, we'll do a bonus version where it'll be this, you know, snowboarding footage. And we'll have a DVD. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And then they realize, oh, we can't fit it into the box. Yeah. Oh, we'll use yeah, a mini DVD. <laughs> They always say, yeah, for, for multi-disc GameCube games, you, you know, you could actually, yeah. you didn't have to have like a little sort of fold-out uh, tray. You know, you right. could actually, they were small enough that you could just have the two slots for each disc on, on the back of the case. So, yeah, that's I guess that's how it came. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I guess this was still, yeah, their way of like, like you mentioned, with the soundtrack itself, the sound of it, you know, trying to be kind of trendy. But right. uh, I don't think yeah. that's ever been Nintendo's strong suit, and, and, and not not very much in the GameCube era, especially just on the, right. you know, you kind of hamstringing yourself just with the, the design of the console, which personally I like, but uh, you know, I would never describe it as trendy. <laughs> yeah, that, so the 1080 Avalanche has, I guess, a mixture of licensed and original music, but the licensed music is, well, to me, it's obscure. Maybe if you're a fan of that genre, maybe some of those artists were well known. I'm not sure. I, I kind of get the impression they were up and coming uh, artists that Nintendo kind of thought they could get a good, good deal on, and you know, they thought, oh, it's a chance for extra exposure. It was a, I mean, that was another thing that was happening a lot around that time, wasn't it? You know, EA were starting to just have, like, oh, for the menus in Madden, we've got all this music from the charts. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. like, yeah. I don't know why they bothered to spend the money to get the license to, to put that stuff in there, because it's like, I'd, I'd like to spend as little time in menus as possible, to be honest. I guess if you're doing franchise modes and stuff like that, it's kind of unavoidable. You're going to spend a lot of time in yeah. them, but... Yeah, it was it was something that was uh, kind of happening at that time, and uh, I I'd never really considered the idea that Nintendo actually kind of got in on that, <laughs> but I guess they did. Well, uh, yeah, well, I guess NST was involved. Maybe they had a little more. Yeah, on, the, on that, that sort of thing. Yeah, that that part of the world, uh, it, it was felt more necessary. Well, we're going to move on to the fourth game here. Cool, but this is going to be a contrast. Great <laughs> territory on. here. Back. My domain.
I really do love that song, even if the rest of the soundtrack was hours of kickle cubicle remixes i might have inflicted it on an episode of radio trivia just to get that mm. song in there but uh, i think you're, you're, you're tempting me dude <laughs> keep splicing in yeah, but i think the subsequent songs will demonstrate that that is very much not the case really enjoy the kind of uh, weird juxtaposition that happens there when you get that sleepy kind of morose violin juxtaposed with the crazy frenetic rest of the song it's great uh, but we've got a potentially not that helpful hint question <laughs> to pose uh, before we get to the last song which is which developer known for making side-scrolling platformers worked on some of the boss battles in this game
think that gave away what series this is. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, God, yeah. I mean, the series, or it's certainly if you've played the game with the sound on at all, that really should have, uh, you know, been the uh, eureka moment where you got the answer. So, uh, to spell it out, this is Mario and Luigi Dream Team for 3DS. Or if you're in uh, Europe, Dream Team Brothers for some huh? reason. I don't know why. It's really kind of odd. It seems like, well, Dream Team works. And then even Dream Brothers works, perhaps. Yeah. But Dream Team Brothers, really? <laughs> I don't I, That's odd. Well, there could, be some other, there could be some other Mario and Luigi that aren't brothers, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. You've got to make it very clear that they haven't, like, dissociated themselves from the family or something. <laughs> but are now teaming back up. I don't know. But <laughs> it's really strange for why they felt the need to show maybe it's a trademark thing. But yeah, uh, this yeah, very distinctive sound to the soundtracks of this series are conferred on it by, of course, Yoko Shimomura uh, in this week's JRPG Composer Hall of Fame episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the first RPG of of this episode. Yeah, just, but just, so we've just, kind of covered like JRPG royalty with Shimomura, Uematsu, Mitsuda. You know, but you know, I mean, she obviously goes all the way back to Super Mario RPG. On uh, the Super Nintendo, uh, mm. uh, 1996 again. Uh, but um, you know, she has also worked on each of the Mario and Luigi games by Alpha Dream, going back to 2003 yep. uh, with the GBA. Uh, and this, I have to say, is my favourite soundtrack of them all. I think. Um, mm. I think that the improvement in instrument quality that's been afforded to the the game because it's on 3DS definitely helps uh you know for instance if you go to that first song um just like when it wants to strike maybe a, you know, a less whimsical tone you know a bit yeah. more atmospheric and all that it's just able to shift gears more because it's got that richness of of instruments to draw upon that i don't think you know the the gba and ds games did quite and and, and maybe even I, I like the compositions a little more as well just irrespective of the kind of fidelity of the sounds but uh, before we uh, get too far away we should answer the hint question so the, uh, the developer that made some of the boss battles in this game is good feel developers of Waryland Shake uh, Kirby's uh, Epic Yarn and the Yoshi Yarn game that's presumably if that's still being developed uh, after it's uh, been sort of dark for more than a year at this point hasn't it uh, yeah. they've not said anything about it I guess you know maybe some of that is because they're, they're they've got a bunch of side scrollers on Wii U you know like DK that they've wanted to talk about and then they've got the Yoshi's New Island on 3DS that they want to talk about so maybe I don't know who's in charge of their portfolio but there's there's a problem yeah <laughs> but uh, good feel also worked on the boss battles for this game specifically um the the there's a whole idea of this game it's very similar to Bowser's Inside Story, except instead uh-huh. of Bowser, it's kind of Luigi uh, in that capacity, and instead of being inside Luigi, we're inside Luigi's mind uh, you know, in, in a dream world, and in the dream world, he can become gigantic and have these boss battles where you play with the 3DS held in book mode, as we used to call it on DS, uh, uh, very much like the giant Bowser battles in uh, Bowser's Inside mm-hmm. Story, and uh, so I can only imagine, it's a little odd that they needed a different developer, considering did you do boss battles just like this in the last game but I would imagine it's because the graphics are polygonal this time 
uh, whereas last time they were still uh, the, the traditional sort of 2D art. So that's why they, I imagine it's just the tech side, maybe. Even though we good feel do plenty of 2D stuff too, but you know, like um, that, I would assume that was purely for those sort of technical reasons. And, and that's one of the interesting things about this game. There's sort of an awkwardness about it in terms of visually. Um, you know, that they. I think it's admirable that Alpha Dream wanted to keep doing um, yeah, pixel art. Because, and then and, and there's some really nice bright work in this game. Um, and it's great that someone's still doing that. But the problem is, you know, in the, the you have got these sort of this split between the overworld, you know, the real world, and then the dream world inside Luigi's brain. And you know, in the real world, they tr- they have this thing where you have like very much like a kind of PS1 kind of era thing of you know these uh, sprites walking around. Uh, a, a polygonal environment and it's just very kind of jarring perhaps even more so with the 3d effect on because you know the sort of you know, it only makes them the, the sprites stand out more and seem more incongruous uh so i kind of feel like almost the the the, the very lovely sprite work is somewhat wasted because it, it, it ends up because it doesn't mesh it doesn't look as nice as it does on its own and certainly Bowser's Inside Story I thought was one of the very nicest looking games on the DS it looked great it was beautiful a gorgeous sort of really kind of vibrant comic book kind of look but also you know very much Mario at the same time Uh, and yeah it just feel like you know couldn't you have just done you know stuck with that kind of style but just on 3DS you know I'm sure it would have worked I don't know whether that the, the, giving it a kind of 3D geometry you know, was any kind of priority because of the stereoscopic effect. I, I don't really see why it should have been. Um, but yeah, that that's one kind of aspect of the game that was kind of a little bit disappointing. I mean, in the dream world, again, much like, you know, kind of what would happen yeah. inside Bowser's belly, it's side-scrolling. Yeah, and then yeah. it looks great. I, I really do think it looks great. So, uh, you know, that it's, it's not as if you know, the game doesn't have uh, some really nice sort of visual components to it. I have to confess, I didn't pick this game up. I, I guess it felt like it was too soon after Bowser's Inside Story. Yeah, it wasn't there, it, there, there was a delay, a long delay in localizing the Bowser's Inside Story, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it, it, it did come out, but it's still, I think it was still like you know, sort of three to four years. The game. Really? So, yeah, I think so. Oh, I mean, geez. it was, it was. Bowser's Inside Story, I'm sure, was 2009 in Japan. So I mean, the latest it would have been would have been 2010 elsewhere. Um, so and then of course, yeah, Dream Team was 2013. So you know, I mean, it, it, it's it was not certainly as quick a turnaround to say, for instance, as um, the original Superstar Saga and then Partners in Time, which was two years, wasn't it? Pretty much exactly. Um, that was that was quick, one oh. after the other. Well, where, I mean, maybe that just means I've had enough of Mario and Luigi. Uh, this well, is the fourth game in the series, and they're not all it, that different. It's fourth game in the series over ten years, so not exactly pounding it relentlessly, but yeah, there's been a lot, and not necessarily the biggest differences between individual yeah. games. I think in this case, in particular for me, it was very much like what I would sort of call an alternate version of Bowser's Inside Story. As I said, you know, it has a lot of the same ideas, but like just applied to Luigi and mm-hmm. his kind of Frady Cat underdog persona, as opposed to Bowser's kind of overbearing oaf you know, right. persona. And, um, you know, first of all, I kind of just like Bowser better in that role. Um, I think he's sort of very fun. He's always fun to play as whenever you get the chance to do that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
but also just the fact that it has been done before. You know, a lot of these ideas you're know, having kind of the overworld and the underworld, so to speak, and the giant boss battles and all that kind of stuff. Like, it, it, it's all broadly the same. And, you know, I mean, this time there's probably more flab on the game. I mean, I don't, wouldn't say that the Mario Luigi games are anywhere near the most sort of streamlined games. They are quite wordy, um, which mm-hmm. is, is part of its appeal. You know, the good localizations, the humour, but it can kind of veer towards being a bit too much at times. And this, well, prob- it's not, it's not a Paper Mario. I, no, Mario no, is, no, is far worse than that. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think it's, it's definitely. I've always preferred these to the Paper Mario games that I've played, namely well, the first one and. Um, Super Paper Mario. Uh, that uh, you know, the, the, these always were a bit crisper and funnier, and you know, but the, the, still quite a lot of text. I think in this case, there's plenty of text, and there, there, there's some padding just in the game design. You know, some retraversal, and it's probably a bit lot. It's longer than Bowser's Inside Story, that's for sure. And mm. I felt Bowser's Inside Story was probably close to being the right length, maybe a bit long for me. I like it. You know, I like it punchy, but. You know, could have maybe been a little bit shorter, but nothing too far out of the ballpark. Whereas this was definitely uh, a bit too long. But also, I just it's not as funny. Yeah, I mm. didn't feel like it was as funny as previous installments. Um, again, well, Bowser is a funny character. <laughs> yeah, Bowser's a great vehicle for for those sorts of gags, and you know, the, uh, you don't get fourful either. He's out of the picture. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really makes a cameo at some point or something, but you know, he's not an integral part of it. So like, Bowser and fourful kind of get. I mean, Bowser's in it, of course, he has to be, but he's more in his traditional role, which is not as funny. Uh, and the main villain, uh, Antasma, is not anything great. It's got this sort of... Uh, in my head, it sounds like a sort of Bella Lugosi vampire voice. That's about all the personality that it has. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not... It's just... It's it's very much the same. And given that uh, Bowser's Inside Story is one of my very favourite games on DS, which is no small sort of distinction, um, I still enjoyed it quite a lot, but it, it did feel like sort of a somewhat diminished sort of alternate version. <sighs> Yeah, I, I'd just like to see Alpha Dream do something different. I, I think that yeah. they're talented. Uh, it sounds like they've kind of hit hit a wall here in terms of creative design, and um, I, I think they should just go off and do something different. You know, maybe it's still an RPG. Uh, maybe they make a console game, or I don't know. I, I don't know what their capabilities are, but no, I mean, I think they've only. I mean, they've only ever made Mario and Luigi games and sort of Hamtaro or something. I think <laughs> they did a Tomato Adventure thing, which was kind of the RPG they cut their teeth on. Yeah, that's good. They've been around since 2000, and yeah, they have not worked on a wide breadth of things. I would certainly be interested to see them do something a bit more different. Or certainly, you know, make, I mean, I think Bowser's Inside Story had like a pretty good mix of you know like introducing enough new elements and being kind of different enough from partners in time and, and you know taking some of the fluff that was out of that game so you know if you could achieve a similar kind of step from the though you're both bowser and luigi those two you know i, I think there's still some mileage in the series but yeah and, and maybe it probably would have to be like another four years before i'd be ready for it maybe i don't know but yeah i maybe, mean maybe this is blasphemy give them earthbound let them make the next earthbound game they're, they're well, yeah, like an rpg yeah I guess, I guess the problem with earthbound is always like you can't do it without your toy and i don't know yeah. if he's up for it you know he's got to have that you know, they would never feel that comfortable to you know in terms of like the gameplay aspects maybe it'd be uh, 
you know, fine, but you, you've got to have that, that narrative uh, running through it. But, uh, I mean, one thing, uh, the, the, one of the really famous criticisms of this game when it came out last year was about the tutorials. There was a lot of banging on about the tutorials, which, I mean, you, first of all, there's a certain amount you can skip, because like Bowser's Inside Story, it says, like, oh, if you've played these games before... You know, you might want to skip these, so it kind of gives you the option to, to at least take some of that out. But also, I just, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of tutorials. Some of it's because there's a lot of different types of actions, particularly in the dream world, mm-hmm. uh, where you get these sort of, like, Luigi powers. Um, you know, and I, I wasn't really that bothered by that. I think that would not be nearly as big of an issue if there wasn't so much text in the regular part of the game telling you what to do and, you know, just dialogue that's not that funny. Yeah. Um, it's just the pacing. Just there was. I think there was a kind of critical mass to which the pacing just got bogged down a bit too much for some people, and then kind of fixated on the tutorials. And I think the issue is broader than that. Um, and and also just yeah, you know, I mean, it teaches you how to do these things in the dream world. You use these Luigi powers and stuff, but then it never really taxes you. You know, like, I, I feel like, you know, some of these powers and, you know, the, these areas they're exploring in the dream world are quite cool. And if they just felt, you know, maybe trusted the capacity of the audience or whatever to mm-hmm. do something so we're a bit more cerebral, a bit more complicated, um, again, maybe you're know, being told how to kind of do it and then applying it for yourself to more complex situations would have felt more natural than like well here's this straightforward thing and we're going to tell you how to do it you know so I guess there was that part of it too but uh, I still enjoyed it it's still a top notch uh, production uh, but just not quite about Inside Story was a high bar and this probably overall does fall a little bit below it but uh, again the soundtrack is excellent I absolutely love the soundtrack Alright, we've got one last game here. Yes, we do. And uh, I know it's one that we've been meaning to play for a while. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that this hasn't been covered before, but uh, we will say no more for now.
Kind of an air of intrigue about that song. Hopefully, uh, giving some people some uh, things to think about before we move on to the next one. Okay, well, it's uh, bonus slash hint question time again. I'm not really sure how useful this one is, but uh, see, I think it's a good bit of trivia, but I don't know how much it's uh, helping anyone. So, uh, what unusual character ability appeared in pre-release video footage, but then failed to feature in the final version of this game?
think you're trying to put someone to sleep here and give them nightmares. <laughs> well, nightmare, an appropriate use of a word for this game, actually. Uh, so this is Metroid Fusion for the GBA. Uh, you might be surprised I haven't used it before. I kind of, you know, well, I had to double check. It's been on the list. I had it's to it's been on the list several times, but always gotten bumped off. Um, it just... Uh, I think you requested it like two years ago. It might have. I think it might be as many as four years ago. Four years know, ago. It, I mean, it was. It, it could be anything between two and four. But yeah, it's. Yeah. I've suggested before. I'm sure plenty of other people have. Um, and listen, request from Jake. And this uh, also, for the record, is not the only significant Metroid game that has not been covered. So if if you if if you feel like you know you, if there's somebody out there that wants to make a Metroid request but they think oh they've probably already done that, check the list that's on the forums at Nintendo World Report, and uh, you might be surprised. But, I'm surprised. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, Metroid Fusion, uh, nightmare, a memorable boss from uh, this game. Uh, that uh, I did not use his track actually, even though that's kind of fun as well. But uh, uh, the final song there, The Underwater Depths, is really one of my so most memorable parts of Metroid Fusion because I, I do really like the song, but also it's a part in the game where you're actually kind of left to your own devices a bit. Uh, you know, where you're kind of off the map uh, because, you know, so much of the game, unlike other Metroid games, you're kind of being shepherded around, the, the computer's telling you what to do and where to go, and you've got a little beacon, you know, on the map and all that kind of stuff, and then towards the end, uh, things happen and, uh, you know, you are kind of more left to your own devices, and that's what kind of, uh, it's a really memorable sort of passage in the game towards the end. Uh, but to answer the uh, the hint question uh, first, so, you know, what unusual ability was shown before the game came out but then never ever actually featured in it was walking on walls and ceilings which when you think about that is a really radical kind of change for metroid if it had it in it um yeah i mean uh it is from the version that was shown at e3 2001 so this is very much just after the gba had come out in america or right around when it was coming out i mean it came out in march in japan so you know the, the system had been out there for a while but this was the first anyone had seen of metroid 4 as it was called then uh and it had this kind of weird game boy color kind of look to it in terms of you know the graphics look kind of basic the samus sprite was really large the mm. on screen kind of reminded you of metroid 2 um yeah. and that is the thing is i believe there was Metroid 2 was kind of considered or they'd worked on it to some extent for a DX type treatment, you know, a Game Boy Color port that would have uh, you know, enhanced it and put it in color and stuff, but that, that never actually materialized, so I don't know whether that early sort of showing of Metroid 4 was based on you know, the kind of tech was still kind of branching off from you know, that, that kind of Metroid yeah. 2 remake project at that point, because the end result looks very little like that at all you know, it's a lot closer. In the span of a year, basically yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it came out towards the end of 2002, so it's just you know, just over a year. And it, yeah, it changed a lot. You know, it looks a lot more kind of you know, what you'd expect it, something to look like that was a sequel to Super Metroid, not mm-hmm. Metroid 2. Um, yeah. And, you know, of course, because it was in that pre-GBASP phase, it had to be very colourful. 
<laughs> because uh, you had the whole Castlevania Circle of the Moon incident yes. where, you know, they, that was a launch title and maybe they hadn't been developing for a finished you know, version or whatever and, and that was dark and you couldn't damn well see any of it without you know, melting yourself under a lamp. <laughs> so subsequent games of that sort, including you know, the next Castlevania game, uh, Harmony of Dissonance, you know, had to be really colourful to make sure that you could see everything. And so Fusion was, was very much like that uh, compared to, say, Super Metroid. And the music as well is a distinctly different feel from, from Super Metroid. Significantly less atmospheric. And I think that's kind of understandable because it couldn't have the same richness of instrumentation um, as the Super Nintendo did. But also I think just because of the nature of the game, um, it is a lot more scripted than Super Metroid it because it because it has the computer and all these sort of events and things. So it's it's it is more so suspenseful, you know, kind of, kind of what you'd expect for maybe like a thriller movie or something. You know, because it has these sort of dramatic situations that play out when it's like, oh, you know, there's a part of the space station that's going to blow up. You've got to go there and for, you know find out what's going wrong. And you know, it's it's got a, a different vibe to it and a lot more of an electronic kind of sound to it. Again probably you know, a lot of that because of what the GBA couldn't be you know, could sure. and couldn't do sound wise but it fits as well because of course the whole setting is is very much inorganic it's fake you know it's right. the space station that's simulating a bunch of different kinds of environments but it's not actually a planet like in the other metroid games Oh, you mean like in Metro Other M? Ah, well, yeah, we could get oh, to the wait. other. Other M is kind of like the the old. We talked about Bowser's Inside Story, be right. The, the <laughs> other M is like the alternate version of Fusion, but is we already just do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, it's always like a lot more similar, and then in other way, gameplay wise, more different. But yeah, yeah. I mean that's the thing. Um, you know this. It many ways paved the way for other M, uh, you know, it because did. it had you know th- those story elements that get reprised, um, and and just the idea of making it kind of more cinematic, more guided, maybe a bit more accessible. Also, I feel like Metro Fusion compared to Super Metroid at Zero Mission is more of an action game. Um, because it's got more bosses. Yes, that's you know, very true. Yeah, you know, it, it's got more of an emphasis on the action. Also, the exploration is more guided. It's less a part of the game. There are parts where, you know, obviously people could say about Metroid that all the abilities and the environments and all that, it's kind of all um, elaborately disguised locks and keys. You know, but sure. I mean, that is part of the joy of Metroid for me is the sort of the disguise, the conceit of like, you know, uh, layering it all together organically. Whereas in Fusion, it's there are parts where it's just like, oh well level three doors have been opened and you know that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. it's very much explicit like lock key color coded doors you know that kind of thing and, uh, and so and like I said he's very literally in a sense less organic than other Metroid games because it's this space station with you know, the sectors with different kinds of environments the exploration is definitely less of an emphasis because you you can't even go back near the end of the game and and uh get all the power-ups right at some I can't, point, yeah i can't remember it whether it's off certain parts of the world for you i can't remember whether that's yeah whether that's literally you can't do it or what but yeah i mean certainly you know you'd think that as well just like you sort of it just feels like okay i've triggered the final sequence there's this like special music for like samus's heroic theme and all that you know it doesn't feel as kind of free for you know, it just feels like you're in a specific point in the story rather than like oh i could just go and screw around at any time 
you know so it's it's a different feel from other metroid games zero mission which came relatively soon after this dialed that back you know you had you still had a little bit of story and you had uh, obviously the sequence after mother brain and and you had like little beacons that could help tell you where to go but it was more hands-off and obviously being that it was based on the first metroid and all that much more traditional metroid territory this was more of an action game and i would say that not only is it more of an action game but it is legitimately a better action game than other than the other 2d metroids like i said i mean the the, the boss designs and all are really good quite challenging i mean zero mission is sort of famously quite easy super metro is not too tricky whereas this is you know some of those bosses have got a bit of bite to them that i really remembered enjoying a lot at the time um the one that i think the biggest difference for me that making it more scripted and more actiony is that it's not as replayable as my you know super metroid and zero mission like uh, it, it, going through those motions again with the dialogue and the, the scripted point is not as much fun as just kind of you know screwing around and all that but the first time i played through it i really really enjoyed it i just thought it was great and of course it was yeah this was before i played metroid prime and i played it the, the first of the two and it'd been several years since i played a metroid game and so it was just so thrilling to go back to metroid and 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 to a game that was this good as well uh, i absolutely loved it so I had a pretty different experience with this game just because it was actually the first Metroid game I played with any real intent of beating. I think I had played a little bit of the NES game and didn't know what I was doing at the time mm. and sort of gave up. And I probably played some of Super Metroid on some emulator or something, but uh, maybe not. Maybe that was after I'd played this game. This was the first game, though, in the series that I really... So yeah, I'm going to try it. People said good things about the series. Uh, I got a Game Boy Advance. I'm going to play it. And I really liked it. Um, I, I can't say I fell in love with it as much as maybe other people that love the Metroid series, but uh, I liked it enough that it, you know, uh, it prompted me to get Metroid Prime shortly thereafter, and I really liked that. So um, I went back and played Super Nintendo game, and that Super Nintendo game is definitely better than this game. I'm sorry. Look, I think Super Metroid is one of the best games ever made. There's no disgrace in it not being as good as it. Yeah. But I do think Metroid Fusion is, is is a little bit more refined in certain areas. Like I, said, I like it better as an action game. Even, I think the controls are a little better. They um, are. The controls uh, are a little better. They which is a bit of an indictment of Super Metroid, considering the GBA had fewer buttons. How exactly, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. How they managed to convolute it so much with, with Super I guess it's because the whole selected the visor and the grapple beam all that That's, stuff and they kind yeah. of they took that out and that was wise oh, certainly if you're going to talk about playability and controls Zero Mission takes the, the, the crown in the series for me but yeah I mean I, like I said for, it does it certainly didn't when I played it the first time it didn't display Super Metroid for me by any means but uh, you know I, I, I liked it because it had some relative strengths you know it was a little bit different um, you know, and it did some things better. Yeah, you know, maybe others it wasn't as um, you know beautifully put together or organic or you know that sort of thing. But uh, it was still really good. And uh, I, I, mean, I suppose the one thing though that was kind of interesting, going back to the whole thing of the pre-release footage, is that it wasn't as different as you might have been thinking from Super Metroid. Yeah, you know, because at first it kind of yeah you know, that early footage of this sort of big 
dark Santa right. sprite that could walk on walls and the whole thing about it being spliced with a Metroid is like, oh, what, you know, this is going to be really different, you know, and, and, and in the end, it's a, even though you still have the idea that, yes, she's, you've had to be, have a Metroid DNA spliced in with her and all it, it, it functionally it doesn't change a lot it's like okay well now she doesn't like cold instead of lava <laughs> you know like for a while anyway you know like it, it's not a big deal in practice uh, stuff like that but you know that pre-release version you know I mean I wonder whether that whole walking on wall thing was kind of came out of the spider ball in two yeah I was going to ask you about that because the spider ball is in two and it does mean you can go pretty much anywhere and you know but of course just as we talked about when we did uh, the Metro 2 retroactive eons ago, uh, that that was you're pretty tedious, just rolling around very slowly. Yeah. Whereas like maybe you know running around and jumping and all that would have been kind of interesting. But of course, it's very difficult to create the same kind of progression structure that you've had in stuff like Super Metroid if you have uh, an ability that game changing anything but right near the end you know if you're going to do it fairly early the level design paradigm would completely change so i could kind of see why they dialed that back to to go totally off the reservation i I was playing donkey kong country returns earlier today and um there there are a couple levels where you have those um uh, like the the grass or something on those ceilings and yeah you grab grab on and and there are one or two levels and one I, i just played where actually kind of feels a lot like a Metroid Prime Spider-Ball sequence. This one <laughs> yeah. really long. And, and that sounds weird, but, you know, Spider-Ball, uh, you know, where you can magnetize to the ceiling or or grab onto the, you know, to the sides. It just... Uh, you can kind of see some DNA there. And I, I know that's a different developer, but... Uh, no, but of course... It, no, I mean, just, I think that the, the way Retro took the Spider-Ball and integrated into the Metroid Prime games was sort of far, far more intelligent than, than yeah. you know, what it was in. Obviously, totally different in 3D, but they, you know, they found a really interesting way to make it work. Work, And then, yeah, I mean, you know, they're working on DK games. Uh, maybe there's all that kind of bled into it. But, of course, that's the thing. I mean, you had these two going on at the same time. And in terms of the music, like, the two people that worked on the Met- Super Metroid soundtrack were Kenji Yamamoto, and um, another chap called Minaka Hamano and so Yamamoto then kind of got tied up with Metro Prime so it was left to Hamano to do Fusion you know they kind of mm. did, did, took that team and split them up basically to do the two games at once and uh, so I think um, it, I think for what what you're trying to do with the GBA it's really good because there was kind of this weird almost N64-esque thing about GBA saying you know if you remember like Circle of the Moon had really quite good music but then, yeah. you know, when they wanted to do the, the 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 more fancy, higher kind of quality graphics for Harmony of Dissonance, all of a sudden it was kind of going quasi eight bit. You know, the, well they the, did. They would use the the GB C chip in the GBA as as kind of a augmenting sound processor, and and so those instruments would be more of a uh, Game yeah. Boy Color sounding. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So that was it, what what's nice about Fusion is that you know I think it looks good, you know uh, the animation and all that kind of stuff, the, the sprite work. But the same, plenty you know going on on screen, it runs okay. But at the same time, you know, the soundtrack is you know, pretty high quality. I, mean, I think you could mm-hmm. argue with that just listening to that and and does the job really nicely to complement the story. So you know they, they didn't you know in a, in a game like Metro Fusion, you didn't really feel like there were any trade offs being made. Whereas, yeah, with other GBA games, uh, yeah, I think you, you kind of could feel that. Okay, well, well uh, I think it's time to call in a night, folks. Uh, Greg, thank you very much for co-hosting this evening. 
my pleasure, my distinct pleasure. Thank you for having me. And if you have any game requests, don't forget you can email me at tyup at nintendoworldreport.com or you can use the email form on the website. Uh, just email me uh, through there and uh, I definitely hold on to the requests and I, I keep them in a spreadsheet and I I, I swear I go back and mine them. So uh, if you haven't requested anything in a long time, please request things again, you know. And if you've never done it before, just send me some stuff. Check the the forum thread, as Clark alluded to earlier. We got a, a gigantic thread in the forums. I see, where, we say, uh, but it's six over six hundred games. You know, in about sort of nine episodes time or something, I, this, this podcast's uh, master list will surpass that of the Japan Wii Virtual Console, which is no small <laughs> feat. It's just fell short of six fifty before stuff started getting delisted. Then <laughs> <laughs> it went down. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it went a little bit down, unfortunately. And then a few things have come back, so it's it's a fluid thing. It's alive, you know. <laughs> it's alive. Uh, barely alive in some sense. Maybe sort like an of. amoeba's alive. Reanimated corpse <laughs> is alive. Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you again, Greg, and uh, good night, everyone. Bye-bye.
Theatrhythm Final Fantasies Copyright 2012 Square Enix. Front Mission Gun Hazard is Copyright 1996 Square Omiasoft. 1080 Avalanche is Copyright 2003 Nintendo. Mario & Luigi Dream Team is Copyright 2013 Nintendo Alpha Dream. Metroid Fusion is Copyright 2002 Nintendo.